As we begin our message today, it comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, feel free to do so. This is one of Paul's epistles that if you turn in your Bibles and find the Gospels, just take a right turn and you'll find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So that's uh, where it is in the New Testament. And the words will also be on the large screens. Let us hear God's word. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed Christ. Listen out for that word today, purpose. Verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, speaking to Gentiles here and also all of those from the Jewish background. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Apostle Paul says a whole lot here in this passage. A whole lot. Even people who are the most studious of the Bible Uh, would say this is a complicated passage to understand. The Apostle Peter himself talks about this when he says Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. In 2 Peter 3.16. Hearing difficult readings and sayings reminds me of how difficult it must be to be a barista at Starbucks. They have to try to interpret all sorts of strange orders that we give them. HuffPost recently had an article that talked about some strange coffee orders at Starbucks. Here are a few. Venti half and half, 10 pumps vanilla, extra whip. Or Venti ice skinny hazelnut macchiato, sugar-free syrup, extra shot, light ice, No whip. There's more. 
double venti Frenchist roast cortado in a plastic cup, go figure, with extra whipped cream. And this is the one I like the best. Two volumetric ounces of turbinado sugar, four scoops of milkshake mix stuff, four shots of espresso, four to six ounces of milk, 16-ounce cup full of ice blended, poured into a choir, 20-ounce cup, top third of cup filled with cappuccino microfoam. That's hard to understand. I take my hat off to my barista. Let's switch over to theology. If you've ever read any Karl Barth, you know that that can be hard to understand. The 20th century theologian who wrote this famed commentary on Romans, and here's an excerpt. The meaning of the famous parallel so-called between Adam and Christ, which now follows, is not what the relationship between Adam and us is the expression of our true and original nature so that we would have to recognize in Adam the fundamental truth of anthropology to which the subsequent relationship between Christ and us would have to fit and adapt itself. (laughs) He wrote that in uh, 1919 when he was in his 30s and without an advanced degree in theology as pastor of a blue-collar church. Today's passage from Ephesians is hard to understand. It's 12 verses long and contains 276 words in the version we read. One commentator says that this passage contains virtually every topic in Christian theology. But in the original Greek, the whole thing is one sentence. Hearing that, we might say, Paul, uh, take a breath, slow down. To help readers, Bible translators broke it down into several sentences. We have eight. But the text is still virtually incomprehensible even to preachers who can read and understand Bart. That said, many scholars point out that the theme of these opening verses in Paul's letter to the congregation at Ephesus is that which God has done for us in Christ. In Christ. I believe that the phrase in Christ is, uh, comes 11 times in just in the verses that we read. And I, I liken this first part of the chapter to praise and thanksgiving and doxology. Praising God for what He has done in Christ. We sing the doxology here often. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him all above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This passage is doxology for what God has done in Christ. And we might summarize it in this way, that God has a purpose or a plan for each of us, which if we sign off on, is accomplished in Christ. And God is already ushering us into a wonderful future. This gives us a foretaste of that which is to come. As someone else has put it, in very simple terms, we might say that the difference between Christianity and regular religion is how they are spelled. Religion is rules and regulations. It's spelled do, 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 D-O, do, do this, do that. Christianity is spelled done. 
Christ has already done everything that we need. Through His finished work on the cross, we might have life and life everlasting. Christianity is not about what we do. It is about what has been done for us in Christ. And through His power, we are able to be His messengers, His witnesses, His light in this broken world. Brothers and sisters, God has chosen us to be His witnesses in this world. Through us, we hope that people will be able to hear and see the good news of God's redemptive and reconciling love through Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us that God has chosen us to give only what God can give us. That is salvation, deliverance, forgiveness, wisdom, and understanding. And we're reminded that God chose us that we are, uh, and that we are to be holy and blameless, meaning set apart and prepared to be living sacrifices different in this world and within the world. And Paul makes it very clear that God's desire is for all people to be in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, that God has a unique purpose for each one of us as we live in Christ. As we go to the next chapter and see verse 10, you'll find these words, for we are God's workmanship, or His handiwork, created in Christ to do good works with God, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's where I'd like to spend our remaining moments today on God's purposes for us in Christ. In both verse 9 and verse 11, the Greek word translated purpose is prothesis. Prothesis. It's like when you do a, uh, in college, you do a thesis statement. Uh, this prothesis. And it comes from a, a word, uh, the root prothethemi, which means to place before, to set forth, to set forth a proposal, or to do something with intention. It's like setting the table for a meal. And every utensil has a purpose. Prothesis reminds us of God's purposes. It is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. And in this translation of the Septuagint, prothesis refers to the showbread or the bread of the presence that was placed in the tabernacle in view so those who entered could see it. The pictures on the screen are the table and the loaves on the table are the loaves of showbread. In the Old Testament in the, and in first century Jewish worship, the showbread comprised an offering to God. Leviticus 24, 5-9 describes how the priests of Aaron were commanded to bake 12 loaves of bread and to set them forth or to place them on a gold table in the holy place, which is the room just outside of the most holy place in the tabernacle or the temple. The loaves are to be set in two rows of six with frankincense in each row. The bread is to be set before God continually, meaning there's always bread there. And on every Sabbath, the priest would come in and they would pray, place the uh, new loaves on the table. They would set them forth before God and then they would take the old ones and eat them in a holy place. 
the showbread, again, called the bread of the presence. Hebrews 9.2 reminds us a tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Just as the consecrated bread was set forth as an offering to God, God's plans and purposes are set forth for us. I think it's really neat how Paul picks up on this old language and uses it to talk about the purposes of God for the people then and for us today. And I'd like to suggest that God is setting a table for us as we begin this new decade of 2020. And it looks different for each of us. But there are some basics that apply to all. Two. One, that God desires that each of us live according to His will. That God has a a will, a desire, a plan, a purpose for each person, for each of us. And then second, that God desires evidence of us living in that will. So that we are in the will of God and that there's evidence of that in our lives. So let's talk about that for just a few moments. The first, God's will for us, if you're taking notes, He has a will for us, and I believe that is clarity of purpose, that we understand what that is, that we hear His voice communicating His will through Scripture, through prayer, through worship, through other Christians, through our experiences, that God speaks uniquely to each of us, giving clarity of purpose. And if you're familiar with Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, He writes, everyone's life is driven by something. Right now, you may be driven by a problem, a pressure, a deadline. You may be driven by a a painful memory, a haunting fear, or an unconscious belief. There are hundreds of circumstances, values, and emotions that he, he says drive our lives. And he says, here are the five most common. Guilt, resentment and anger, fear, materialism, and the need for approval. There are other forces that can drive our lives, but all lead to the same dead end. Unused potential, unnecessary stress, and an unfulfilled life. We desire to live a fulfilled, purpose-driven life, guided, controlled, and directed by God's purposes as revealed in Scripture. Nothing, in my view, matters more than knowing God's purposes for our lives. Paul makes this so clear. This is our student ministry key verse, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, His pleasing, and His perfect will. God's will is good. His purposes are good. It is pleasing and honoring to God when we are in His will. And it is perfect. Not that we are perfect, but that God perfects His plans through us. That God is the one who is the author and the finisher of the work that we do. That God will bring it all to a finish when we have fought the good fight, when we have kept the faith, and when we have finished the race. It is God's work in and through us, not our own. And the other bullet point I have there is not only clarity of purpose, but influence and power. 
We are called to be people of influence and power, not in the world's way, not in the government's way, not in the military kind of way, not in a dictatorial kind of way, but Jesus flipped it in a, and says that we have power through the Spirit, which comes in humility. Jesus says those who want to be first need to be last. He says, take up your cross and follow me. That power and influence come when we submit to Jesus out of humility and obedience. And in Acts 1.8, we hear these words, but you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there is clarity of purpose and influence and power as we live in God's will. And then here's the evidence. God's, the evidence of God's will in our lives. And there's unity. Evidence of unity. That we are part of God's family. That we seek to be a unified people. Not uniform, all the same. But unified in the teachings of Jesus just as the uh, early church experienced in Acts chapter 2 this unity. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions. They gave to anyone who have need. Each day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with sincere hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all people. They were together in unity. Church, we must be together in unity as we seek to be God's people in this world today. That we might have uh, the opportunity to show a positive understanding to the world of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the other way I have there in your notes that God's will is evidenced in our lives is through His special blessing, His power, His presence, His anointing given to us as we read and hear God's Word, and we call this unction. Can you say unction? Unction. Unction. It's an old word. Uh, Melanie, Isabella, and I were in South Carolina uh, uh, after Christmas, and we attended worship with her mom and at the church where we got married and where Melanie grew up. And the pastor used this word unction, and my ears perked up. And I wrote it down, and I did some research on that when I got back. And unction is a word that means anointing. It comes from a Latin word, ungeri, if I pronounce it right, which means to anoint someone with oil or ointment. In Bible times, it was used to refer to someone who was anointed into the ministry, the priesthood, and also when someone was anointed with oil for healing. It's difficult to describe, but you know it when you see it. In Acts chapter 2, the people heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and they came to a point where they had to do something. And verse 37 of chapter 2 says, uh, they said, brothers and sisters, what shall we do? Meaning the Holy Spirit prompted them to take some kind of action. They were moved to a decision. When you hear the gospel, and sometimes when it's for the first time, the Holy Spirit speaks and we are moved to a decision. Or maybe there's a call on your life, the Holy Spirit speaks and we're moved to a decision out of obedience. Luke tells us this same thing happened with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
And they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This anointing, this unction is recognized because of the power that it has on the listener. Drawing people close to God to his mercy and grace. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotional high. It is the evidence of a fresh anointing of God's Spirit drawing us into Himself and calling us to His purposes. So at the beginning of this new year, I don't have a list for you. I don't want you to uh, write down all the things that uh, you, you need to do. Now, you may wish to do that, and that's fine. I believe that as you go through this year, uh, the best way to begin is with a fresh anointing, a being with God centering your and my life on God and his will and his vision and his purposes will come out of that being. It starts with God and prayer and the Holy Spirit allows us then to do what we, he calls us to do. One writer suggests we consider this in the context of God's anointing and call him the great anointer to fill his hands with the essence of the Spirit and then pour his blessings on us, pressing the power of the Spirit and anointing deep into our souls. And we see this and pick it up at the end of Paul's uh, passage here in Ephesians. And I believe that we are called to a fresh anointing as we begin this new decade of 2020 that we would open our hearts to the great anointer. May we allow God to guide and direct us in a new and fresh way as we seek His good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. That God's vision and purpose would begin with our being with God. And we see this as Paul gives these last two verses to us in our text, verse 13 and 14. And you are also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise and His glory. Uh, these words convey that when one believes in Christ, one is marked with the seal or the signet. God's seal is pressed in on us. We talked about that in the Haggai series. And that this is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's people. The message paraphrase says it this way, calling it the first installment of what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything that God has planned for us. This first installment is translated from the Greek word erebon. Erebon is a legal term with much the same meaning as earnest money today if you've ever bought a house. You've got to put this earnest money deposit down as a guarantee that you will do the rest. Some of you know David Bailey here in Richmond, and he's the executive director of a ministry called Erebon. He's spoken here. We have a good relationship with Erebon. Their website says the word Erebon means a foretaste of what is to come. I believe that the church is to be a foretaste of a reconciled heaven and a divided world. That is what David has on their website, and I believe that speaks to us today, that we should be a foretaste of a reconciled heaven to our divided world. People need to hear this message perhaps now more than ever. Earnest money is more than a guarantee. It's a partial payment that obligates the buyer and seller to complete the transaction 
Paul here applies this common business terms to dealings with God and his people. The experience of faith that we have now, given by the presence of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is indeed the earnest money, the first installment on what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything that God has planned for us, as the message puts it. Have you ever thought about your life now as the first installment? In effect, this passage is saying that the highest experience of peace and joy in Christ that can be known in this world is only a small taste of what we will experience someday. As the hymn writer says, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born in His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Oh, what a foretaste it is. And this meal that has been set before us today is a foretaste of the divine glorious banquet that we will experience in glory. Our deacons will serve you in just a few moments. But we're reminded that Jesus met with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, the night before he was to die on the cross, and he took bread and blessed it and broke it, and he distributed it to them and said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, as often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine and blessed it and poured it out, saying, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of your sins and the sins of many. As often as you meet together, Take and drink this do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the death of the Son of Man until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us and points us to you to your divine mercy, grace, forgiveness. And in these moments, may we surrender ourselves to you. May we offer our confessions of sin, known and unknown. May we give you all the stuff from 2019 that we'd like to just forget. Reminded that you are the God who remembers our sins, who forgives our sins and remembers them no more. May we honor you as we enter into this sacred meal. That you would bless those who receive it, those who serve it, and all of us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.